Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this opportunity to gather together, uh, to encourage one another, but also to learn from you and from your word. And we just pray that through your spirit, uh, you'd give us the heart and the mind to help us to understand this so that uh, we can apply it in our, in our lives and live uh, lives that give glory to you and your son. Amen. About two years ago, uh, a friend of mine who is a Muslim background believer lost his entire life savings in a transaction that went wrong. Okay, It wasn't much uh, by our standards here. It was something like $400. But it was all that he had. Basically, uh, someone sold my friend a piece of land that wasn't actually theirs. But now, now my friend comes from a particular tribe that has a culture of retribution. Okay, honor demands that you do something back to the person that wronged you. So my friend struggled with his desire for vengeance and his family demanded that he actually take action. But what was interesting was that he struggled to get good advice from other believers from the the tribe that he came from, that he knew. Uh, because they also thought that some type of retribution was warranted so as to restore honor to the family and also to relatives and appease them. Okay? Now, part of the reason they probably struggled to consider an alternative, such as forgiving the other, is because in this particular area where my friend is from, when you evangelize Muslims... Um, the gospel workers usually or emphasize to a Muslim who's interested in, uh, in coming to faith, they usually just say, just add Jesus to your life. Okay? You can keep your ethnic culture. You don't need to leave your culture. You don't need to be like us. Okay? Now, from a positive perspective, you have to understand the idea behind this approach is that they don't want, you don't want to impose our Christian culture onto a group that's naturally suspicious of Christians. Okay? So the idea is more, let's keep it simple, keep it all about Jesus. So the desire and rationale is actually to make it easier for Muslims to say yes to Christ. That's the idea. The problem with just adding Jesus to your life is that being in Christ sometimes makes little to no difference to their life because they don't feel the weight of who he is. See, you just fit Jesus into the way you live, which means you often make decisions based more on your own cultural norms and ideas. Now, this is actually a big issue in cross-cultural missions. And you might think, this is not an issue for just here, uh, for an issue here. But when I think of life in Australia, as I said before, life here is very quick and very busy. You can wake up in January 1 looking forward to the year ahead and, and find that the next time you actually think about life, it's already May. Okay? And you wonder, where did that, all that time go? See, friends, if life is that actually that busy, and this, that fool, it's not that hard to just fit Jesus into your life by just picking and choosing what works best for each one of us. 
See, I have Christian friends here in Australia who I only see every three years. Okay? So what I tend to get is more of a snapshot of their life in three-year intervals. And it is noticeable that for a number of them, they haven't really moved forward in the faith. So if that's the case, my question is this. As a Christian, how do you feel the weight of who Jesus is so that knowing him makes a difference in the way we live now for him? Consider our passage from Luke uh, chapter 5 from verse 33 to 611. Now, in context, Luke actually begins the account of Jesus' ministry with the prophecy of Isaiah earlier in Luke chapter 3, verses 4 to 6. There, he quotes Isaiah. And, um, he quotes Isaiah, The voice of one shouting in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley will be filled, and every mountain and hill will be brought low, and the crooked will be made straight, and the rough ways will be made smooth. And all humanity will see the salvation of God. See, the expectation is that the Lord God himself will come to bring about salvation, not just for Israel, but for humankind. And then who finally comes? Jesus. So the good news, according to Luke, if you want to kind of truncate it, is the fulfillment of the expectations of the coming of God into the world through the person, life, and work of Jesus. Okay, And for Luke, he wants the weight of this major event to create ripples in the lives of his readers. See, in retelling the ministry of Jesus, Jesus shows, for exa- uh, sorry, Luke shows, for example, that he is a great teacher, uh, that he has... Uh, the will to resist the devil, has power to heal, and in fact even commands evil spirits. So what we actually find through Luke's account is his fame spreads quickly, far and wide, and many praise God because of this person, Jesus. But by Luke chapter 5, verse 17, his teachings and ministry has actually attracted the attention of, uh, of the religious authorities. So you'll notice that the Pharisees and the teachers of the laws are sitting nearby watching as he forgives and are amazed when he heals the paralytic. In Luke 5.30, you'll notice that the Pharisees and again the teachers of the law are there when Jesus spends time with sinners and tax collectors. And by Luke 5.33, these same people start now to ask him questions as to why his disciples don't fast and pray like the other recognized religious groups. So what's happening is they actually have a mixed picture of Jesus at this point. They are amazed at his work, but troubled by some things about who he associates with and how he leads his followers. And one of the lines of investigations regarding Jesus' credibility is his attitude and teaching towards the Old Testament laws and traditions. See, they want to see if he and his disciples actually keep them. Because for the Jewish religious authorities of Jesus' time, keeping the requirements of the law 
was part of the mark of a faithful believer and teacher of God. See, they wanted to check if they could work with him. They wanted to see if Jesus is someone they could play ball with. Essentially, they were not seeking deeper uh, spiritual insights or seeking to understand the purpose of God, if, that is, if that's their agenda. See, after noticing Jesus' disciples weren't in the habit of fasting, they pointed out to Jesus in Luke 5.33, and then notice Jesus' response in 5.34 to 35. So Jesus says to them, You cannot make the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them, can you? But those days are coming when the bridegroom is taken from them, and at that time they will fast. Now, it's a strange response to our ears, but Jesus' point is you're not actually interested in understanding the significance of who I am and why I came. Okay? See, the coming of the Lord God of Israel in the person of Jesus, as I said before, is the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy in Isaiah 40. So this time should actually be a time of great rejoicing at the coming of God's salvation. And that's exactly what the prophet Isaiah repeatedly teaches in response to the Lord's coming. So, for example, Isaiah 44, 23. Sing for joy, O heavens, for the Lord has done this. Shout out loud, O uh, earth beneath. Burst into song, for the Lord has redeemed Jacob. He displays his glory in Israel. Isaiah 49, 13. Shout for joy, O heavens. Rejoice, O earth. Burst into songs, O mountains. For the Lord comforts his people and will have compassion on his afflicted ones. Isaiah 52, verse 9. Burst into songs of joy together, you ruins of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed you notice how they actually meant to celebrate the coming of the Lord? And you cannot celebrate if you think it's time to fast. Because fasting in the Old Testament is meant to be a sincere act of repentance to the Lord, usually during a time of mourning or, or distress. So they don't get the significance of who he is and the timing of his coming. Because they were not seeking deeper spiritual insight, nor seeking to understand the purpose of God when they came to him to ask those questions. See, their interest in Jesus was on whether he is someone they could use. See, their encounter with Jesus here was more about figuring out whether they could fit Jesus to their system to their institutions, to their traditions, to their agenda, without changing any of it. And I think this is why Jesus tells them a parable or an illustration in Luke chapter 5, verse 36 to 38. He says there, No one tears a patch from a new garment and sews it onto an old. If he does, it will have torn the new. And the peace... From the new will not match the old. And no one pours new wine 
into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. Instead, new wine must be poured into new wineskins. See, Jesus' point is that you can't simply pick and choose what you want and fit him into life or any human culture, institution, or system. Because Jesus' way calls for a total change, a total revolution to how they live and think about their life. Because the significance of who Jesus is means your life, your agenda, your existing beliefs has to give way to him. See, I think this is part of the implication of Isaiah's message when he says, prepare the way for the Lord. The significance of Jesus coming as Lord means you have to actually clear up and take down the old ways to make room for him. See, his new teaching leads to a new way of life that can only fit into a new person, which meant that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law also needed to change because they were no better than the sinners and tax collectors that that they looked down upon. See, that's why I think Jesus anticipates that they will not actually like what he represents. See, in Luke chapter 5, verse 39, uh, it has a couple of ways uh, you could translate it, but it could read something like this. No one, after drinking old wine, wants the new. For he says, the old is good enough. See, Jesus anticipates that his coming, his new way, will actually be hard for those who have invested and got used to the old ways. Namely, in this case, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And this is what actually does happen. The religious establishment does react against Jesus because he threatens their established position in society. See, what you have to understand is that the Pharisees and teachers of the law had a reputation of being proper and right on matters of applying God's command and statutes. And their careful obedience to the law is what gave them status within their Jewish community at this time. So Jesus' teachings and action ultimately threatened their identity and place of importance in that society. And this explains why they reacted so violently against him. And you start to see the attitude of the Pharisees and teachers of the law Turn hostile on another occasion. On a Sabbath day, Jesus was in a synagogue and attending was a man with a crippled hand. So they waited intently for Jesus to heal him and to prove Jesus guilty of breaking the Sabbath regulation. So he said to the crowd, I ask you, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath or to do evil, to save a life or to destroy it? But the silence of those who wanted to accuse him show that they weren't really interested in understanding or learning the intent of God's laws. And so in Luke chapter 6, verse 11, after seeing Jesus heal the man, 
they plan to assassinate him. See, I think this is actually the most tragic, uh, this is the tragedy of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Because a wise and a good man, or a good person, is instructed and guided by the laws of God. But a fool and a criminal uses the laws of God to justify evil motives. So it's understandable that Jesus rebukes them later in Luke chapter eleven thirty-seven to 52, to 52. So for example, to the Pharisees, just listen to it. He says, but woe to you, Pharisees. You give a tenth of your mint, rue, and every herb, yet you neglect justice and the love of God. But you should have done these things without neglecting others. Woe to you, Pharisees. You love the best seats in the synagogues and elaborate greetings in the marketplace. And to the teachers of the law, he says similar things. Woe to you, experts in religious law as well. You load people down with burdens difficult to bear, yet you yourself refuse to touch the burdens with even one of your fingers. Woe to you, experts in the religious law. You have taken away the keys to knowledge, yet uh, you do not go in yourself and you hinder those who are trying to go in. See, what Jesus sees and condemns is that they honor themselves rather than God in how they observe the requirements of the laws of Moses. But the significance of Jesus leads to a new way of thinking about yourself and how you live your life. See, go back to Luke chapter 6, verses 1 to 5. It's the part where the Pharisees question Jesus as to why his disciples are picking the heads of grain as they walk through the fields during another Sabbath day. Now, in their eyes, this was forbidden because it constituted work on a holy day. So in Luke chapter 6, verses 3 to 5, Jesus answers them, Haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? How he entered the house of God, took and ate the sacred bed, which was not lawful for any to eat but the priests alone, and gave it to his companions. Then he said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Now Jesus here is not giving uh, an Old Testament case study to breaking God's law when there's a need. Rather, Jesus is noting that if David's followers are right in doing something considered illegal by eating the consecrated bread because they serve and follow a high authority, that is King David, how much more are Jesus' disciples right in breaking the Sabbath tradition when they are serving and obeying the greater son of David? Now, Jesus, is, Jesus here is trying to make a point about who he is. He is the one and only Lord who has authority even of the Sabbath. He is the one and only Lord that Isaiah prophesied about would come. But Jesus also shows us how his followers are to identify themselves. His followers are to be defined by their relationship to their Lord. So doing the requirements of the law is ultimately not as important as following the one that they serve. See, when we come back to our original question, as a Christian, 
How do we feel the weight of who Jesus is so that knowing him makes a difference in the way we live? Well, it's only when we recognize who we serve. It's only when we remember and identify ourselves as the servant of the Lord Jesus. See, this is the mark and status of those who are truly part of God's community under Jesus. We are to be identified with who we serve, namely the person, the Lord Jesus, who died for us and was raised up in glory. Not by what we do or have done, not by what we have, not by who we were before we came to Christ, because none of these things matter to how we were saved and became part of God's community under Christ. So if the mark of honour and maturity in the faith in this community is not Jesus alone, through faith alone, you've got to understand, you dishonour his name. But when you identify yourself as a servant of the Lord Jesus, it also changes your perspective and way of life in often a very countercultural way. See, take, for example, the Apostle Paul. Uh, he often calls himself a servant of the Lord Jesus, or in the older translation, uh, a slave or bondservant of the Lord Jesus. And in Philippians chapter 3, verses 8 to 11, just listen to what Paul wrote. More than that, I now regard all things as liabilities compared to the far greater value of knowing Christ Jesus as my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. Indeed, I regard them as dumb, that I may gain Christ and be found in him. My aim is to, show, uh, is to know him, to experience the power of his resurrection, to share in his sufferings, to be like him in his death, and so somehow to attain the resurrection from the dead. So notice how for Paul, Jesus is not someone that fits, that just fits into his life. It's what defines him. Okay? Everything revolves around him. Jesus is his reality. And you can only do that by emptying yourself of what you consider important beforehand so that Jesus might become everything to you. Specifically from verse 10, Paul points, uh, uh, Paul points, uh, Paul, Paul's point is that a servant of the one suffering servant follows the pattern of sacrifice at the cross and finds hope in the resurrection. See, we are to be and to live as an imitation of Jesus' example on the cross. Friends, to turn and to be devoted to the gospel of Jesus is to imitate and to live by the pattern of Jesus on the cross. And according to Jesus' pattern on the cross, well, you go back a couple uh, chapter before in Philippians, chapter 2, verses 5 to 11. And there you, you have it in summary. Okay? And what you see there is that Jesus did not take advantage of his divine status, but instead he denied himself, gave up his life, 
so that we might be saved from our sins. See, as people who have received Jesus as Lord, being a servant of the Lord Jesus means, means imitating this pattern, this example. We don't take advantage of our human status, rights, nor God-given abilities or resources or opportunities for ourselves. But we look to sacrifice these things and use them for the benefit of others. See, remember the friend that I spoke about at the beginning? Uh, This is actually what I reminded him. Um, Okay, Because my friend wanted to actually do something really bad to this other person who wronged him. He had the cultural right in his community to take vengeance on this person. His community would have supported it and he would have gotten, he would have gotten away with it. But I encouraged him to look at the cross and the example of Jesus as the pattern by which he exercised his right for redress. Now, fortunately, he did listen to me. Okay? He did forgive the person. And he did it publicly. And it caused a lot of commotion in his community. Because what he did was unexpected. It was new. And it was revolutionary to many who saw it. See, when you live by the pattern of the one suffering servant, Jesus... You make different choices that are not just about fitting in. Because life is marked by living a new way of life that involves sacrificing our own privileges, our own statuses, our own advantages for the benefit of others just as Jesus did. See, friends, this is what it means to live in light of the gospel. This is how you stop just fitting Jesus into your timetable. The cross is not just the basis of God's forgiveness from our, basis of God's forgiveness for our sins. It is also the way of life for those who follow Jesus. That's why he says in Luke chapter 9 verse 23, "If anyone wants to become my follower, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily." Now imagine if your relationships, your marriage relationships, work under this pattern of the one suffering servant. Well, I think for one thing, marriages are no longer a constant audition because you're not judging your spouse to see every day that maybe they're they're good enough for me or are they good enough for me. So you're not always auditioning. Imagine if the way you give is based on this pattern. Well, you're going to give in such a way that it changes the way you live rather than maintaining your standard of living. Imagine a church that lives by this pattern of the one suffering servant. Well, firstly, I think one thing you might notice is you wouldn't make serving others fit your schedule. It would be the other way around. And the church would probably be Relative, quite free of divisions, factions, and jealousy because our old way of life does not mix with our new way of life. Now imagine if our society and our leaders 
had this same attitude as the Lord Jesus? Well, it might not solve all our human problems, but I imagine there would be more understanding and sympathy towards those who are actually different from us. And as a result, there would be more potential for peace and forgiveness, and people would take care of one another. And if you think about it, it would be a beautiful place to live in. See, friends, that's the beauty of a life lived by and and as a consequence of the gospel of Jesus. Why don't we pray to that end? Bow our heads. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for your son Jesus, for coming into this world, bringing about forgiveness of sins and our salvation, and giving the world an example and a new way of life and a new way of thinking. Father, forgive us for the way that we sometimes mix our old ways with the new and for the way sometimes in our busy life we simply try to just fit him in. Father, forgive us for this and we just pray, Father, that through your spirit you'd continue to encourage us, rebuke us and move us to move to see your message of salvation, but also to see it as the pattern by which we are meant to live in this world so that we might give honour and glory to you and be a light to those uh, who don't know you. Father, we pray for this church, for its continued faithfulness in preaching your word, but we also pray that you'd help us through our example and lives to communicate that same truth, that cross, which we hold so dear, we pray, Father, that that would be the most important thing in our life. Amen.